you have your Bibles this evening, please to open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 21 this evening. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, for the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come to this most familiar passage this evening, we pray O Lord, that you will enlighten our minds to the knowledge of Christ, that we might see him in these words, that we might see the truth of your gospel, even here in the midst of Mount Sinai. Father, help us to know your truth, to love your truth, and to desire your truth. Be with us this night, we pray. Speak, for your servants are listening. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, tonight, we come in our study of the book of Exodus to perhaps the most famous portion of Scripture in all of history. From ancient times up until today, believers and pagans alike are familiar with these words, or at least the broad concepts that are contained in this passage. They've been used on everything from art and architecture to literal rule of law. And it's these familiar words that we come to tonight. 
Over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the theology, the reasoning, and the application of these 10 commandments. Tonight, however, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to spend a majority of our time answering three simple questions that will serve to introduce the commandments to us via the prologue uh, or the preface to the Ten Commandments. They will also, these questions will remind us of the point and the purpose of these commands in relation to Israel and in relation to us. And then these questions will also help us to summarize and simply organize these Ten Commandments. We have three questions we're going to ask tonight, and these will be our points for the evening. First, we're going to ask, why ought these laws be obeyed? Secondly, we're going to ask, what purpose do these laws serve? And then thirdly, we're going to ask, how do we best understand and organize these laws? So our first question this evening, the first question that we come to, why ought these laws be obeyed? Why these Ten Commandments? There is first here, I think, an underlying question that is being assumed and then subsequently answered in the preface to these Ten Commandments. Why ought these laws be obeyed? It's a simple question, and it's a question that every single one of us, every single person in this room asks of pretty much any rule that they're ever told, be that consciously or subconsciously. There are those of you sitting here tonight who, like me, want to know the reason behind every single rule, every single decision, and attempt to uh, evaluate the validity of said rule by the reason for it. And then there are those of you who are more naturally inclined towards rule following, and you still ask the question subconsciously, but you simply understand the reason for the rule to be that an authority told you to do it. And then there are those of you who probably fall somewhere in between. But the point that I want to make here, uh, and the point that I believe is uh, the preface of the Ten Commandments is making, is that we all judge rules, or in this case laws, by the reason for them, although we may seek that reason in somewhat different ways. Well, God, in understanding this tendency of man, and perhaps we might even go so far as to say the sinful tendency of man in some regard to, to question laws and to question rules, provides for us in the preface to the Ten Commandments in verse 2, three reasons why these commandments are to be obeyed. And it's from these three reasons that we can even go so far as to extrapolate the benefits of this obedience. So there's three reasons that are offered for us in the preface, three reasons that answer this question, why ought these laws be obeyed? The first reason that we see here in the text in verse 2, the first reason why these laws ought to be obeyed is that God is God. God is God. He is an authority. He is a perfect authority. As God of the universe, everything that exists, exists because of Him. Therefore, there is, He is by necessity a perfect and absolute authority on every single subject at all times and in all places. There is nothing that God doesn't know. There is no place that God has not been. There is no creature that God did not make and does not sustain. Simply put, He is the greatest and most perfect authority on the matter at hand. What's best for the people? What's best for these Israelites? What's best for the people of God throughout church history? God knows. And He gives it in these laws, in these commands. How can we become more godly? 
How can we serve Christ better? It's given for us in these commandments. Why should you obey them? Because God said so. The creator of the universe says it is so, and therefore it ought to be so. But he doesn't offer this as the only reason. It's not just that God is God and therefore a perfect authority, and he says it and you should do it. Though that is certainly enough reason. But he offers two more reasons. The second reason that he offers is that not only is God God, he is also our Lord is our authority. He's not just an authority kind of off in the distance making rules that he expects people to follow and not having any interaction or any personal relationship with them. He is also our Lord. Or if, to use the words of the catechism, he is our God. He's not only God, he is our God. There's a personal dimension here, a personal relationship. God here, as he sets up these Ten Commandments, makes a personal connection he is not a disconnected creator who made everything and then let it be he is not some abstract idea of perfection rather he is our god and our lord and therefore these commandments have a personal dimension to them as well a personal requirement rather than us only obeying simply because god is the creator and again that is absolutely enough we ought also to obey because He is our God and our Father, and He cares specifically for us and has therefore given us these Ten Commandments. This is even further demonstrated by the third reason that we ought to obey these commandments. And the third reason is that God is the Redeemer of His people. He is God, He is our Lord, and He is also our Redeemer. This simply serves to further the the first point our personal, loving, heavenly Father who cared enough for us to redeem us out of the house of sin has called us to obey these commandments. This God loves us. Because He loves us, His desire must be what is best for us. And what is best for us, that we obey His laws as they are rooted in His very character and being. Why then ought you obey the Ten Commandments? Why are they binding on our conscience Because God said so. And because the God who said so loves and cares for each and every believer personally. This is the foundation upon which these Ten Commandments are built. And when we understand this preface, when we understand these truths, that they are given to us by God, by our God, by our Redeemer. When we understand this, it is impossible Absolutely impossible for us to keep reading and come away, come away thinking that God is some mean old man giving us stupid rules to follow for the sake of controlling our lives. The exact opposite is true. He is a loving Father who wants what, be, what is best for us. Just as the earthly father tells his child not to touch the hot stove, so God tells his children to stay far away from the spiritual hot stove. Why do we obey these commands? Because God loves us and because we love God. This is the first question that we have asked tonight. The second question that we come to in this text is what purpose do these laws serve? What purpose do these laws serve? What is their role in redemptive history? There has historically speaking been a divided understanding of the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament as a whole among Protestant churches. We in the Reformed camp tend to take one view, while many of our Baptist and 
Lutheran brethren would take a very noticeably different stance on the Old Testament and on the Ten Commandments. Historically speaking, a less Reformed view of the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments has made a rather drastic distinction between the dispensations of God's people and grace. More specifically, uh, many Baptists and Lutherans would look at the Old Testament as purely inspirational in its content. These laws recorded for us here in Exodus chapter 20 were for Israel. They're not for the church. The people of the Old Covenant were saved in a different way than we are today. They were saved by the law, whereas we're now saved by grace. And because of these differences, while they would understand that it is good to read and to practice these commandments, they're not binding on our conscience as believers in the same way that they were for the people of Israel. Contra this, Reformed theology has historically understood a unity of the two Testaments, a unity of the people of God. Adam was saved by faith, as were Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and the prophets. Their faith was in a future Messiah, albeit, even as our faith is in an already come Messiah. They were saved on credit, whereas we are saved on debit. But if this is the case, as I would argue it is, then what do we do with the Ten Commandments? We can't simply write them off as something for Old Testament Israel that are good to read, but otherwise not that helpful for us. We can't just say, well, that's how Israel was saved, and we're saved in a different way today. They cannot, it would seem, both from this text and from our understanding of the book of Exodus, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, be the means by which Israel was saved. Um, These laws were, in fact, not a means of Israel's salvation at all. Rather, they were a reminder of their own condemnation apart from the mediator. You see, these commandments were not new to Israel. They were not something that were being given for the very first time, at least not uh, spiritually speaking. These commandments had been established from eternity past as they reflected on the character of God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were subject to these same ten commandments that God is giving to Israel here in Exodus chapter 20. And in their eating of the fruit, in their disobedience of God, they broke all ten of the commandments. Consider what Edward Fisher writes in The Marrow of Modern Divinity when he speaks of Adam as he broke all ten of these commandments with a single uh, bite of the apple. This is what he says, Adam in doing so chose himself another God when he followed the devil. He idolized and defied his own belly. He made his belly his God. He took the name of God in vain when he believed him not. He kept not the rest in the estate wherein God had set him. He dishonored his father who was in heaven and therefore his days were not prolonged in that land in which the Lord his God had given him. He massacred himself and all his posterity. From Eve he was a virgin, but in the eyes and mind he committed spiritual fornication. He stole like Achan that which God had set aside not to be meddled with. And this his stealth is that which troubles all Israel and the whole world. He bore witness against God when he believed the witness of the devil before him. And he coveted an evil covetousness like Amnon, which cost him his life, his and all his progeny. These commandments were given to Adam and Eve in 
their hearts. They were written on their hearts in a perfect way. Adam and Eve knew these Ten Commandments because these commandments were universal. They were eternal because they reflect the character of an eternal God. They're not new to Israel. They're binding on all believers in all times and in all places throughout history. So then why are these commands here and not in Genesis? Well, as Fisher goes on to explain, the law of God was written perfectly on the hearts of Adam and Eve, even as it's written on the hearts of all who come after them. However, as time went on and sin increased, the curse becoming more and more apparent in their lives, the law began to fade from the hearts in such a way that when, by the time Israel comes to Mount Sinai, God chooses to write these commandments down for them so that they might know them well. That there may be no question of what it is that God requires of them, of the obedience that God requires of them. And that there may be no question of how poorly they matched up against His uh, standard. This is really the point of the Ten Commandments, is it not? To show not only Israel, but us, our need of a mediator. To show us that we cannot possibly measure up to the standard which God sets. God's standard is holy and righteous standard that is measured not by by human terms, but by His holiness. These Ten Commandments are here for us. They were here for the people of God that they might know that they desperately were in need of a mediator, a go-between, to make them right with God. I think this is proven all the more clearly in this text when we move on down to verses 18 through 21. Notice the response of the people when they see all that is going on, when they see the thunder and the lightning, when they see the smoke and they hear the trumpets. What is their response? Verses 18 through 21, they tremble in fear and they stood far off into verse 18. And in verse 19, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They know that there is absolutely no way that they can approach God and live. There's absolutely nothing that they bring to the table that will save them from His perfect wrath for their sin. And so what do they do? They ask Moses to be their mediator. Fisher once again notes that this is not only Moses serving in a typological way, serving as a mediator as he imaged Christ who would one day come and be the perfect mediator, but it is also the people's act of faith. It's their act of faith as they acknowledge the need for a perfect mediator, of whom Moses was but a shadow. And certainly, this must have been true. They must have understood this in a spiritual sense. For while we know that many of them did not obey God, many of them did not follow Him and would later die in the wilderness because of their disobedience, many others did. They trusted in the mediator. They trusted that they could be made right with God, looking forward in faith. That He, the mediator, might make right their wrongs and draw them close to God. So what purpose do these laws serve? Most simply, they serve to show us our sin and our need of the perfect mediatorial work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There is no other means by which we can approach the living God and live. It is only by Christ. Our third question this evening and our final one. How do we best understand and organize these laws? How can they be rightly summarized? 
I'm going to make the argument here this evening that they can rightly be summarized in three sections. Uh, Of course, these are summarized for us in the greatest commandment that Christ gives us, uh, quotations from Old Testament Scripture, that we ought to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the summary of the whole law of all ten of these commandments. But when we come to them, we tend to, historically speaking, make a distinction between what we would call the first table of the law being the first four commandments and the second table of the law being the latter six commandments. However, in the past 100 years, there have been some good arguments that have been made that honoring our father and mother, honoring of authority, is rightly placed under the first table of the law, making it five and five. For the same reason that we saw Adam's violation of the fifth commandment, that he any breaking of God's law is a dishonoring of God as our father and as our Lord. Now, I'm not going to change it up from the historical view, but I think it is helpful for us to see and to understand this fifth commandment as a bridge between the two halves of the law. It has a foot in both camps, as it were. It deals both with our love for God and our honoring of Him, as well as our love and honor for one another. Well, that said, I think the best way to summarize and to organize the law, these Ten Commandments, is by placing Commandments 1 through 4 in Section 1. And these deal with laws for the worship of God. Laws about how we are to worship who we are to worship, why we are to worship, and when we are to worship. Commandment number one, who is it that we are to worship? The Lord and the Lord alone. Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Commandment two, how are we to worship? Is it with graven images? Is it with our own methods of worship? No, it is how God tells us to worship. Commandment three, why are we to worship? Because the Lord is deserving of honor and glory and majesty and and all praise. He is deserving of our worship. And then when are we to worship? On the Sabbath day as he has set it forth for us. Commandments 1 through 4 tell us how it is that we worship the living and the true God. How it is that we can come and honor and praise him. Commandment 5 is on its own in section 2. And it serves, as I said before, to bridge the gap between the two. That we are to honor God as our heavenly father first and foremost. And when we do that, we will honor other people. Honor our earthly fathers and mothers. Honor those who are in authority Uh, over us but it also serves to reemphasize and return to what has already been said in the preface that god is the perfect authority by which all of these laws then have a binding authority over the life of god's people and then the third section is the remaining commandments commandments six through ten and it's these three that begin to really delve into and deal with our relationship with one another. You see, in commandment six, uh, the relation to one another in terms of our lives. See, there are also a relation in commandment seven, relations to our family. Uh, in commandment eight, relation to property. Commandment nine, relation to reputation. And then commandment ten, relation to self or self-contentment. And there's really something of an umbrella effect of these commandments. And and again, this is just a broad overview that we'll come into in more depth in the coming weeks. But notice the umbrella effect. If, If you're willing to take someone's life, then you're by all means going to be willing to take his family, and you're going to take his property, and you're going to take his reputation. And it all comes down to the fact that you're not content with what the Lord your God has given to you. And you can step down from that. If you're 
not willing to take his life, but you're willing to take his wife, you'll then also be willing to take his property and take his reputation and so on and so forth. There's a a kind of pyramid effect of these commandments. They all serve to show us how it is that we are to fulfill them by loving one another. We are to have, first and foremost, a self-contentment, a contentment with what it is the Lord our God has given to us. He's promised that he will provide all our needs. We've already seen this in the book of Exodus. He's provided the food and the water in the midst of the wilderness to Israel. He's provided for them as they they fought against Amalek, as they ran from the Egyptians. He's provided for them time and time again. He's promised provision. And so the question then is, are you content with what God has given to you? And then are you willing to protect the reputation of those around you? Are you willing to protect their property? Are you willing to protect their families and ultimately protect their lives? These commandments deal with our relation to one another. And so as we go through these commandments in the coming weeks, one by one, we're going to see in greater detail the truths contained in each, how they condemn our sin, how they image for us the character and the nature of God, and how they point us ultimately to Christ. As we close this evening, the question for you is not, do you follow these laws or not? That one's easy. You don't follow these Ten Commandments. If you take nothing else away from our our reading of the law on Sunday morning, you should realize we don't follow God's law. Not like we are supposed to, and certainly not well enough to earn our own salvation. It's absolutely impossible. We don't obey these laws. And so that's not the question for us. The question for you is do you recognize their authority over you because of the one who gives them? And I want to be clear here. Your acknowledgement of their authority, your acknowledgement of God's authority doesn't determine their legitimacy. Just because you do or don't recognize God's authority doesn't make these laws any more or any less binding on you. But it does call you to reflect on your priorities. Are the things of God the things that are most important to you? Or are the things of the world of greater importance? Are you concerned with obedience or are you concerned with self-pleasure? Are you filled with awe and a desire to know and to love your Lord and your mediator? Or are you filled with a desire to set his words aside while you live your own life? You go your own way. We'll cover in greater details the specifics of each of these commandments. But tonight I ask you to reflect on these words of Almighty God. Let them affect your very soul. Confess your sins and your failures. Seek Christ in them that you might be filled by His grace and His mercy. And if you're sitting there tonight and these laws don't affect your innermost being, if, if you can read all of these, all ten of these laws and not consider how you've broken them and not consider your need for a Savior, Pray that the Lord will open your eyes by His Spirit. Ask that He will break that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Seek Him where He may be found in His Word and He will reveal Himself to you. For He is a great and awesome God and worthy of all honor and all praise. Let us pray. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word this evening. We thank you for these commands that you have given to us that reflect your character and your very nature. Father, we thank you that you have indeed redeemed your people, that you are our God and our Father. And we pray that as we begin 
tonight and continue over the coming weeks, this study of these laws that you have given to us, that you will help us to grasp them with a greater depth of understanding. That we will have a desire to obey them, to follow them in every area of our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Not that we might somehow merit your salvation, but because of our mediator and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made us right with you. Let us, out of a love for him, do this which you have commanded for us. Be with us, we pray, as we go from here. And may we glorify your your name this week. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.